What a joy it is to be together again to worship our God, to hear from His Word, and let us open to it this morning to our text is Genesis chapter 1. It's a good place to start, right? Genesis chapter 1. And throughout the sermon, actually we're going to go through the whole chapter into chapter 2, but I just want to begin by reading verse 1. Hear the word of the Lord. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. Let that sink in for a moment. Father, we pray you would bless your word today. The things that we will read, see throughout the scripture today are just so marvelous, so magnificent. Pray that you would open our eyes that we truly might behold marvelous things. In your word. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Amen. Please have a seat. <clears throat> if you've been around our church for any time, you've heard me say something on a regular basis. It's all about Jesus. And I love that, and it's true. Um, if you've heard me or I've been a part of encouraging your life in any way over the years, you've often heard me say, eyes on Jesus. He's the center. He's the focus. We've spent our Christmas time looking at the greatness of Jesus. And that's true. The power of the gospel of Jesus Christ, His perfect life, His sacrificial death on the cross, His glorious resurrection from the dead where He conquered death and sin and Satan forever. It's the power of God that transforms us. And today I'm going to be speaking primarily to those of us who have been transformed. We have believed the Gospel. We've received the Gospel. We, we're trusting in Christ alone. We're keeping our eyes on Christ alone. Now how do we live? How do Christians think? We called it last week a Christian worldview. That's our series that we're in for the next couple months now. Worldview. Faith for all of life. And we're going to be teaching a bit differently where instead of going through Matthew verse by verse like we've been doing, we're, we're, we're hitting different scriptures that are teaching us how to think like Christians. Pastor David laid the foundation last week with truth. The Word is truth. The Word of God. And so everything we, we come at, we come at with, with an eye and an ear to hearing and seeing the Word of God from the Scriptures. But how does that work out then in every aspect of my life? How, how does my faith work in the office tomorrow morning? How does my faith work at school or when I'm doing homework? How does my faith work at home in my marriage and my parenting and my family? And how about, how about the Capitol building in Washington, D.C. or the local courthouse or the art museum or the movie studio or social media networks or my Spotify channel? All of it. How does it work? How does dinner tonight, how is that something that is done by faith for the glory of God? We need to harness truth, which means we need to obviously run away from untruth and an ancient heresy that's been around for a long time, all the way back to the beginning days of Christianity, was what's called a Gnostic heresy. Which, which devalued the material. In essence, said anything material or, or physical, this, this podium, the chair you're sitting on, your body, your, your hands, your fingers, that's all bad. Only spiritual is, is good. And there are times where the church ends up buying into aspects of what really is a Gnostic heresy. So what we need is our worldview shaped 
the lens, as, as Pastor David said, that we look at all of life needs to be a biblical worldview. A worldview is powerful. Worldview, it's like a, like a car transmission. Right? The, 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 what powers the car? A motor, right? The engine. You're not going anywhere unless the engine is powerful. And you, but you can rev up that engine and, and turn it on and, 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 and hit the, uh, the gas or, or put the little, I don't even know what it's called. I'm not a mechanic. That little trigger thing that you pull from the engine, it actually revs it. You can rev it all day. Vroom, vroom. But if you don't have a transmission that takes that power developed from the engine and transmits it to the tires on the road, you're not going anywhere. A worldview is like that transmission. It takes the power of, of the gospel that transforms life, and then it, it puts that power onto the road, and you actually go. It moves an individual. It moves a family. It moves a culture. It's incredibly important and it's key to understanding why individuals fall away. Churches downgrade. Marriages fail. Societies and cultures like much of Western civilization today come crashing down. So we're going to bounce off of last week's sermon laying the foundation of truth and look at the first truth, if you will. We're going to go all the way back to the beginning. We're look at creation. Creation and covenant. The title of today's sermon. And as we look at creation, I want you to know off the bat, this is not an apologetically focused sermon. I'm not interested today, I'm not focused on defending apologetically the idea of, of creation. If you want to study that, go to Answers in Genesis. That's a great group. Ken Ham is awesome. Go to the Institute for Creation Research. There's plenty of apologetical resources. That's not what I'm talking about today. And I'm kind of making some certain assumptions, but I think I'm okay making that because if Jesus, for instance, saw Genesis as literal and, and historical, and Paul as well in his writings, basing his teachings often on the creation, uh, uh, creational norms, and, and if they understand Genesis as full reality, I don't know, maybe you know better because you live 2,000 years later and you have Stephen Hawking, but I'll go with Jesus and Paul. Let's look at these important concepts, biblical concepts today that are essential for us when it comes to a biblical worldview, this idea of creation and covenant. Let's start with covenant and understanding what this is. Point number one, God relates to humanity through covenant. God relates to humanity through covenant. Now, what is covenant? It's not a word that we use often in, in the society today. You've heard it if you've been around here for any time. But let's just review it briefly again. Covenant, in essence, is the simplistic definitions on your notes, a sacred oath-bound agreement between two parties. Now, it certainly goes much deeper than that. But that, in essence, is, is what we could say is a covenant. The sacred oath-bound agreement between two parties. And it's a, it's a relationship, in essence, between two different parties, two different partners, if you will, who make these promises to one another, promises that are binding. Promises that they will work together for something in, in, in an ultimate way. They're often accompanied by oaths, by signs, by ceremonies. We look at ancient covenants, we see them. We see in Scripture God known as a covenant God. I put several verses you can look up, but Deuteronomy 7, 9, Know therefore that the Lord your God is God, the faithful God who keeps covenant. It's one of the things that over and over again we see God talk about in himself. He is a covenant-keeping God. A covenant's not just a, a contract or, or a compact, like what you filled out or signed when you got your car loan. It's, it's a solemn pact. It's a weighty pact. And it's personal because it's relational. A covenant defines not buying my car, it defines a relationship between two parties. Think of marriage. It's not a contract. It's, an, it's actually a covenant with promises made. Think of church membership as covenantal. There are promises that are made and, 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 and such. And so all of this flows out of the ancient way that, 
that people bound themselves together. But more importantly, the whole understanding comes out of God Himself who, because it was God Himself that bound Himself to His people through covenant. The Bible itself you could consider a covenant document. When you open your Bible and you read it, you're reading a covenant. Ancient covenants consisted of, of several different parts. It was usually, especially if the most important ones, written down. It was actually in writing, written down somewhere, and it was written down somewhere in public because it, was, it had to be inspectable by the public. Anybody could come in and view the covenant. It listed some specifics. It listed the specific relationship between the two parties. It would list the stipulations between the two parties. What were they agreeing to do for one another? It listed the sacred oath that they would take with, with one another. It, it listed the blessings that they would expect to receive if they kept the terms of the covenant. And it also listed the retribution that they would expect to suffer if they broke the covenant. They also would list in covenants how that covenant would bind their heirs. It was something that was handed down generation to generation. Entering into covenants was a major part of what it meant to live in, in the ancient world. So it's beautiful and amazing that God reveals Himself and relates to us as humanity in something that we can grasp. As the transcendent God reveals Himself. There were different types of covenants in the ancient world. There were peer-to-peer -peer covenants, which was equals. And there were what were called suzerain covenants, which was not among equals. It was usually a conquering king who would come into another nation and conquer that nation. They would defeat the nation, take control of the nation, and then make a covenant with the nation. <laughs> and that nation would then do things like pay taxes and tribute to that king. And that king would offer then to protect them from further enemies and attacks. So those were agreements made, but they weren't made one side. They weren't made because, uh, because we're the same. They were made by, by the fact that you just got conquered by a king. So how does all of this concept of covenant then relate to worldview? Where are we going with this? How does it contribute to a Christian worldview? If I could go on for quite some time in talking about it, but just to name a few things. In the covenant of God, we are bound to God, and He is bound to us by sol solemn oath. Think about that for a second. In essence, He's our suzerain. He's our King. He's our Lord. We do not accept Jesus as Savior and then sometime down the road make Him our Lord when we finally decide to obey Him and follow His ways. That is not taught in Scripture anywhere. He is Savior and He is Lord. We are bound to God by covenant as the covenant people of God, but also think of the flip side of this. God is bound to us. Now I could, I'd love to go off on that a tangent, but I've got a lot to cover, so we're not going to go there, but just think about what that means for your prayers. A lot of our prayers sometimes are weak and ineffective because we're just timid in our prayers of, oh God, if you can, He can. <laughs> he can. When you read some of the prayers of, of these saints in the Scriptures, you see them saying, God, you said. You promised. Because they knew the, the character of God is a covenant-keeping God who keeps His promises. So pay, pray big, bold prayers, understanding that God is bound to us in the covenant. Covenant also shows that God is interested in, in everyday life and the flow of history. Because it is a relational covenant. He's not sitting back like 
like the deists would teach as some great watchmaker that just wound it up and let it go and is aloof and unaware and uncaring. He's intimately bound to his people, and so he's interested in the everyday occurrences of our lives. He's interested in the flow of history. In fact, his work is done in the wear and tear of history. Think of Messiah. Think of how God instrumentally and providentially guided the flow of history to his ends. That's our God. That's what he does. And that's important. Because history matters. Because time and space and matter matters. Sometimes too many Christians see eternity and and time much more in a platonic way, like like Plato or the classical Greeks or or, or the Gnostics who who see the the material and the physical as bad. They, They think in a dualistic way that sets the ideal, some ideal, immaterial world against the covenantal, material, historical world that God created. Covenant means that history is the chief arena of God's activities with with mankind. And that's incredibly important. We'll talk about it later. That basically means this, everything matters. Everything matters. Covenant also dictates God's stipulations in our lives. His laws matter. The church, the, the people of God, Christians are not to be antinomian. And we have to be cautious because there's a lot of teaching out there today that just, it's grace and grace. Law bad, grace good. And I understand none of us can keep the law apart from the transforming work of Christ in our hearts. But once God has transformed our hearts, He wants you and empowers you to what? Obey Him. He gives you the strength. That's the power of the gospel. But we've allowed ourselves to, to in a very anti-biblical and, and especially an anti-Pauline way, see grace as something that, that leaves us with a license to live however we want. That in no way is the teaching of Scripture. A covenant people is a law-keeping people, and we love it. We don't read the Psalms like Psalm 119 and hey, hear these beautiful expressions of how I love your law, Lord, and we think, that doesn't make sense. No, we get it in Christ. We get it. We didn't keep it. Christ perfectly kept it for us. He gives us his perfect righteousness. And now he empowers us to walk in obedience to all he commands. And then he says to go into the whole world and teach the nations everything I've commanded. This is the power and the importance of covenant. What does this have to do with creation? The covenantal story actually begins when God creates humanity, creates the world, creates man in his image. So we're going to go over today. The word covenant is, is not explicitly used in Genesis chapter 1, but the details of the relationship are, are, are incredibly all over it. We're going to turn to the creation account in Genesis chapter 1, and here's what we're going to see a few things. Look for this. We're going to see God doing some things, He's going to separate. Separate things and then place them into covenantal relationships. And that tells us that by virtue of creation, all people are covenantally related to God in one of two ways. Either as covenant keepers or as rebels. Next week we're going to talk about that part. Today let's talk about the first part. So let's look at point number two, the foundation of the Christian worldview. What is it? The foundation of the Christian worldview, how we see the world, how we see everything in life is creation. That's where it starts. If we get the foundation wrong, it all collapses. And so the best sense of understanding the foundation is is to follow the biblical storyline. And so that's where we're going in the coming weeks. You're going to think biblically. You have to understand these categories. Let's learn it right now. Three words. You can summarize the whole Bible in three words. Creation, fall, redemption. Say it with me. Creation, fall, redemption. If you get nothing else today, get that. Because that will open up your understanding as you begin to grasp what that means of what 
the Bible is all about and therefore what God is all about. A lot of times we'll start, and not wrongly so, appropriately so, we'll start our Christian journey in like John, John 3.16, right? God so loves the world that gave his only son. And that's great. Let's start there. Or, or Matthew chapter 1. Well, that's the best place, New Testament, right? Well, I, actually, I would propose to you that the best place to start is the beginning. If you're going to really understand the big picture, the best place to start is the beginning. It's like, it's like watching a good movie, right? Come on, you have that family member, just like you do. Or I probably am that family member. Where you're watching a really good movie, and, they, and you, they're all into it, and they come in and be like, they're like 30 minutes in, right? And they start watching, and they're like, what, why did he say that? Well, why, why, why did that just happen? And like, Sh- shut up! <laughs> you need to what? Watch it, what? From the beginning. Let's just rewind it and start over, right? Well, our worldview gets really messed up sometimes, and, and we don't even know it because we don't understand the beginning. In Genesis, God creates, He defines, He separates, and He blesses. All of it in true history. This is not a myth we're going to read. This is not some some. Uh, account that is equal to the pagan ancient myths that are regularly out there in the world today. This is true history. God is a God of order. God is a God of structure. God is a creative God. And all of this is real history. It's not some Gnostic notion of just ideas that we can build some really good principles out of. It's not unreality that, that can be interpreted if you have that special knowledge and you know what it really means. You see, it's important to tie history to theology. Not, not moral, spiritual, or intellectual ideas, but theology to history. Why? Because it roots them as unchanging. And that's what's true. Otherwise, what you end up doing is where we are today in the worldview of many people. Everything's in flux. Everything can change. Everything shifts. No. Creation as unchanging gives true meaning and significance. The structures that God has placed in life give true meaning and significance to everything because they're real. Not sociological constructs that change with the times. And so we look at Genesis and we see it as both cosmic, cosmic history, and we see it as as covenantal because we see the language of covenant all over as we see God blessing and blessing and blessing. Cannot pit the cosmos of God's creation against His covenant. They go together. But let's look at Genesis 1-1 again, as we see God call all created reality outside of Himself into existence. Verse 1, in the beginning God created the heavens and the earth. Important to note that God created both the heavens and the earth. It says in verse 2 that the earth was without form and void, and darkness was over the face of the deep, and the Spirit of God was hovering over the face of the waters. So God creates here right at the beginning both the heavens and the earth. He, he, he brings an order and a form from the chaos. And notice it says the earth was without form. The earth was void. The earth was empty, if you will. But it doesn't say heaven was. Heaven had structure and form. In Job 26.7 He says of the earth that God stretches out the north over the void and hangs the earth on nothing. That's quite a statement, isn't it? The earth is without form and void, and God creates structure and order right in the midst of that form and void. Heaven already had structure and order. And heaven actually is what provides the, the model or the pattern for earth. And the, the heavens, as far as we say them, not as, not as the dwelling place of God, but the heavens meaning the sky and space. 
These things that God creates, I hope you'll see as you look into them, are, 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 are patterned after something. Well, after what? After God's dwelling himself. Heaven provides the model or the pattern for earth. That's why we pray. Jesus, when, when they asked him how should we pray, pray this way. Your kingdom come, your will be done as what? On earth as it is in heaven. There's this understanding of heaven breaking through into the earth. The host of heaven is, is a model for man who, who's going to become a host. God revealed the plan for, for the tabernacle and the temple from the heavenly one. We see that in Hebrews 8. It tells us in verse 5 of Hebrews 8 that, that they serve the priests, earthly priests serve a copy and shadow of the heavenly things. For when Moses was about to erect the tent, he was instructed by God saying, see that you make everything according to the pattern that was shown you on the mountain. That was a heavenly revelation of, of, of a copy, if you will, of God's dwelling place that was physically here on the earth. In Isaiah 66, 1, it says, Thus says the Lord, Heaven is my throne, and the earth is my footstool. What is the house that you would build for me, and what is the place of my rest? And so in creation, we, we also see this creation of, of what God is doing is, is, is creating a temple for Himself. The, the whole earth as a temple for His worship, for His glory to be displayed. In Psalm 78, 69, it says, He built His sanctuary like the high heavens, like the earth which He has founded forever. So we saw in, in originally in, in the first verses that cre at creation, heaven and earth were not separated by any barrier. And the, and the Spirit of God was hovering over the waters. And then God reveals to us the days of creation. Let's look at these days. Day one, God creates light. Verses 3 through 5, and God said, Let there be light. And there was light. And God saw that the light was good, and God separated the light from the darkness. God called the light day, and the darkness he called night. And there was evening, and there was morning the first day. So here we see the creation of light, but I want you to notice that the luminaries in the sky are not yet created. So what is happening as the Spirit of God is doing this work of creation, God Himself is the light. The Spirit of God provides light for the first three days before the sun is even created. Certainly would speak poignantly to the ancient world who often worshipped the sun as a god. Well, before there was even a sun, God was the light. God caused the light to shine for those first three days. Day two, the expanse is then created. We could call it the firmament in other translations or the atmosphere. Verses 6 through 8, and God said, let there be an expanse in the midst of the waters. You're going to see the word waters a lot here and and. <coughs> There's a, a lot of ancient creation myths that are surrounded by um, explaining that somehow the primordial world began out of the waters and the water itself was deified as a god. It's certainly not odd that they would see that as important because as, as tales were told and, and, and orally stories were given and, and then sin creeps, creeps into the world as we'll talk about next week and certainly everything gets distorted and all of a sudden creation itself gets worshipped. But you notice God makes the waters. Let there be an expanse in the midst of the waters and let it separate the waters from the waters. Here's another, here's an act of separation. You'll see more. And God made the expanse and separated the waters that were under the expanse from the waters that were above the expanse, and it was so. And God called the expanse heaven, and there was evening and there was morning the second day. This word separated, or speaking of the expanse, I mean to, to, to spread out. It's like, it's like pulling a curtain. God spreads out 
the sky, if you will. He takes this non-barrier between heaven and earth and He creates a barrier. We see the sky created and also an expanse separated from that, meaning space itself is created. And that's a barrier that's only going to be removed in the eschaton, in the end of days. We see as the temple was created as well, this barrier that was made between the Holy of Holies and the rest of the temple. Here we also see a separation as, as, as the waters are separated, creating barriers. Not only from the first heaven and the second, but now the third, the heaven that Paul actually had a vision of. And so we see this understanding that heaven is there, but it's, 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 it's not like us here. It's not, it's not limited by time and space. It's, it's like another dimension. And if you're blown away, so am I. I don't really understand it. I'm trying to. But what it does encourage me in is this, that heaven's not that far away. Because it regular times in Scripture, not regular, but several times in Scripture, that curtain was pulled back. That barrier was, was lifted and, and Stephen, for instance, was able to look into heaven. Just for a moment, he caught a glimpse of, of the Son of Man sitting at the throne. We know Paul was caught up to the third heaven and saw things he couldn't even explain. We saw Jacob as the heavens were opened to him like a window where angels were descending up and down a ladder. And so there's this, this great mystery, but there's this, this separation for now, but that one day will be removed and heaven will actually come down to earth. You can read about it at the end of Revelation. We could go off on that quite a bit. But what I want you to see also is that even as the ancients deified the waters, the Judeo-Christian worldview actually de-gods the cosmos. It, it de-divinizes the cosmos, if you will. Although the cosmos are upheld by God's covenant word, creation itself is not God. The pagan view is that the cosmos is everything and everything is one. The Christian view is God is distinct from His creation. Creation is not God. Creation is not divine. And yet, creation is not without divine activity. In fact, miracles are everywhere if you just open your eyes. Marvelous works of God. Pastor David read about it in Psalm 29 at the beginning of our service. The voice of God causing the deer to give birth. The voice of God controlling the universe. We have to be cautious in a day and age where we've been raised to think in a humanistic enlightenment paradigm. We miss the supernatural hand of God animating His creation. The fact that you woke up this morning and took a breath is the work of God. I was on a walk the other day and stopped at a eucalyptus tree and looked at the leaf and meditated on the glory of God in creating that leaf. The fingerprints, the hand of God is everywhere. Too often today, creation is seen as impersonal or mechanical instead of personal and covenantal as God created it to be. It's God's temple. It's God's sanctuary. Day three, dry ground and plants are created. Verse nine, God said, let the waters under the heavens be gathered together into one place and let the dry land appear. And it was so. And God called the dry land earth. And the waters that were gathered together he called seas, and God saw that it was good. In verse 10, when God calls the dry land earth, that's the last time he names anything. The, all the other naming is to be done by, by God's steward, by man. And God saw that it was good. God's creation is pronounced good because it's patterned after heaven. Only Christianity gives us a rational, ordered world 
that remains enchanted, if you will, by God's creative work. God's sovereign plan that, that fills everything with meaning. Verse 11, And God said, Let the earth sprout vegetation, plants yielding seed, and fruit trees bearing fruit in which is their seed, each according to its kind on the earth. And it was so. Verse 12, The earth brought forth vegetation, plants yielding seed according to their own kinds, and trees bearing fruit in which is their seed, each according to its kind. And God saw that it was good. And there was evening and there was morning the third day. You see the creation of the, of the plants. And, and we, we know later Jesus would tell us that, that, that looking on the lilies of the field, not even Solomon himself was arrayed in, 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 in such beauty and glory. We'll find out in a few chapters that, that seeing the, the beauty and the glory of these plants, Adam thought he could cover his sin with that glory. In Genesis 1, we're seeing a pattern. Eight creative acts. Day one, light. Day four, the luminaries in the sky. Day two, or, or excuse me, uh, day two, the expanse, the sky. Day five, the birds, the fish. Day three, earth and vegetation. Day six, animals and men. Why is this important? Because God in, in His creation structure shows that His work is purposeful and deliberate. He tells the plants, commands them, if you will, to reproduce after its kind. All things exist by the creative Word of God and are designed and purposefully deliberate to self-perpetuate. This itself is part of the marvelous work of God. And when we begin to tamper with the marvelous work of God, we always see risks there's great risk in attempts to, to bringing together what God has purposefully separated. Try to crossbreed. You come up with infertility. Doesn't work. God can't bless that. After its kind, it was important that He created things and separated them to reproduce after their kind. Day four, He creates the sun, the moon, and the stars. Verse 14, and God said, let there be lights in the expanse of the heavens to separate the day from the night and let them be for signs and for seasons and for days and years and let them be lights in the expanse of the heavens to give light upon the earth and it was so. And God made the two great lights, the greater light to rule the day and the lesser light to rule the night and the stars. And God set them in the expanse of the heavens to give light on the earth to rule over the day and over the night and to separate the light from the darkness. And God saw that it was good. And there was evening and there was morning the fourth day. Creates these beautiful luminaries, the sun, the moon, the stars, these things that keep us alive and enliven our lives. Isn't the sun a blessing? We had a lot of rain recently. Lily and I were talking, and we're, we remember we had like three or four cloudy days. And Lily says, I'm so glad I don't live in the Pacific Northwest. <laughs> Couldn't do this every day. That sun that brightens our life keeps us healthy. It also keeps time. You know, the universe is like a giant clock. How the ancients told time. Amazing, the design of God. Day five, birds and sea creatures. And God said, let the waters swarm with swarms of living creatures and let birds fly above the earth across the expanse of the heavens. So God created the great sea creatures and every living creature that moves with which the waters swarm <coughs> according to their kinds. And every winged bird according to its kind. And God saw that it was good. And God blessed them, saying, Be fruitful and multiply and fill the waters with the seas and let birds multiply on the earth. And there was evening and there was morning the fifth day. This day five fascinating world was created, huh? They're just now beginning to explore. They've never explored certain depths of the ocean. Like discovering new countries. Amazing, the marvels that are under the sea. And then, because you're probably asking, well, what about the dinosaurs? Here's the dinosaurs. The great sea creatures. 
Dinosaurs were just large reptiles, y'all. <laughs> Let an alligator keep growing. That's a dinosaur, <laughs> right? God created it all. The earth is filled with birds and fish and great sea creatures which begin to reproduce after their kinds. And then day six, and God said, verse 24, let the earth bring forth living creatures according to their kinds, livestock and creeping things and beasts of the earth according to their kinds. And it was so. And God made the beasts of the earth according to their kinds and the livestock according to their kinds and everything that creeps on the ground according to its kind. God saw that it was good. Verse 26, after the creation of the land animals and the pronunciation once again that it was good, God said, let us make man in our image, after our likeness, and let them have dominion over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the heavens and over the livestock, and over all the earth, and over every creeping thing that creeps on the earth. So God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him. Male and female, he created them. And God blessed them. God said to them, be fruitful and multiply, and fill the earth, and subdue it. And have dominion over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the heavens and over every living thing that moves on the earth. And God said, Behold, I've given you every plant yielding seed that is on the face of all the earth and every tree with seed in its fruit. You shall have them for food. And to every beast of the earth and every bird of the heavens and to everything that creeps on the earth, everything that has the breath of life, I've given every green plant for food. And it was so. And God saw everything that he had made. And behold, it was very good. There was evening. There was morning. The sixth day. Day six is very special. The animals are important. Plants are important. Water, the sun, the moon, the stars, all important. But day six is a special act of creation. Humanity is created. And then humanity is then blessed by the God of the creation covenant. God says, let us make man in our image. A lot of people wonder, what does that mean? And some people will say, well, it's like, you know, we say, hey, let's go shopping. Like God was just talking to himself. <laughs> There's a Trinitarian aspect going on here is what's happening. Who's he talking to? Father, Son, Holy Spirit. All involved intimately in the act of creation. And then creating man in the image, the, the stamp of God upon man. What does that mean? The image of God. What, we can run off in a lot of tangents on that. Like what... What part of us is, is like God? Is it the soul? Is it the fact that we're rational thinkers? Is it our intelligence or our capacity for relationships? And what I would say is be careful of, of getting too hung up on dividing it all apart. Man is a whole. Man is an integrated whole. Like my son Joseph, when he was like four or five years old. How old is he? Four years old. My wife is Mexican, if you all didn't know. And, uh, and, and so my kids are half... Mexican, half white, I guess, right? So, so Joe one time was talking and, and to somebody, and he says, I'm half Mexican. This half's American, and this half's Mexican. <laughs> he, he divided himself up, right? It was, it was great. We were cracking up laughing. He was thinking about it, like, which half of me is Mexican? You know? Huh. I wouldn't spend too much time doing that. Which part of me is like God? Certainly... I think we can highlight some important things in the fact of the moral attributes of God because God says to be like Him in His righteousness, in His holiness, in His, in His dominion. God created man in His image. Male and female, He created them, it says. He creates man and woman distinctly and by different means, which is important. And I think that actually is the wrench in the theistic evolution debate. 
There's no response from theistic evolution on why and how God created men and women by different means. This also helps us understand how it excludes all pagan homo cosmologies which are resurgent in our time. Everything is one. The universe is one. Me and the tree are one. This is basic to our being creationally. This is fixed in our being. Made in the image of God. Created in the image of God. Male and female. And so it also speaks to the homoerotic or the, the bisexual or the multisexual culture that can have no blessing from God. The gift of procreation is an aspect of God's creational blessing. So in covenant with God, man is given a calling to exercise dominion over the creation. He said, over all God has made it as a, as a steward, as a peaceful steward, to subdue, not to exploit, not to destroy, but to subdue all things for the glory of God. As God created His temple, if you will, man is set in it as the priest king. In order to bring all of God's work to maturity through His dominion activity which was blessed by God. In day 7, we see the end that God rests. In chapter 2, 1, Thus the heavens and the earth were finished and all of the host of them. And on the seventh day, God finished His work that He had done and He rested on the seventh day from all His work that He had done. So God blessed the seventh day and made it holy because on it God rested from all His work that He had made in creation. And there's much we could say about that, but... What, I won't get too much into it, but what I can say is that having a renewed covenant with God each Sabbath is creational in what we're doing today. In, 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 in meeting with God, we rest in His work, not just on the seventh day, but we rest in His work every day. We rest in His work and we work in His rest. Much more to say about that, but we need to move on to point three. As creator, God has covenantally structured his cosmos according to his unbreakable laws. How does covenant and creation come together? God has covenantally structured things in such a way uh, through creation. And in that created work, done covenantally he has instituted laws if you will uh, let me say how about an os it's god's cosmic os his operating system that he has instituted by creation unchanging unaltered affected by the fall but not erased these are what we'll call creational norms my friend Andrew Sandlin named them that, and I'm using his seven creational norms. These are norms just like the norms of all of creation, like gravity. If anyone would like to test the law of gravity, let's go up to the top of the building at the end of the service and jump off. We'll test it and see if it still works. These are laws, right? These are laws that if you break it, it will break you. Gravity will break you, literally. <laughs> the same is true with ethical and spiritual laws. They are unbroken and, have, and consequential. If they are broken, there will be consequences. What are these seven? Let's review them quickly. We already saw them in Genesis 1, so I'm going to go through them quickly. We, see, we saw the creator-creature distinction. This, this, this is versus anything that's pantheistic or deistic. God is omnipresent, yes, but God is yet distinct from His creation. He alone is eternal. And as distinct from His creation, He is above and beyond all of the finite things that He has made. And yes, God may choose to interact and even fellowship and does with His creation. 
The things that God has brought into existence, though, do not share His divine essence or being. The creator-creature distinction is fixed. It will not change. Secondly, humanity is created in the image of God. The imago Dei. What does this mean for biblical worldview? All of human life is valuable. It means there's no moral dilemma, as some in today's world would say, if you see a, a baby and a dog drowning, it's not a moral dilemma, folks. Human life is of the utmost value. And I love my dog. I love him so much, we chopped his leg off. <laughs> He's got three legs, so we could keep him alive. But he doesn't compare to you and the value of you with the image of God stamped on you. This also means that respect for all of life, even life in the womb, or should I say especially life in the womb, is valuable and must be protected. It's amazing to think in this principle that the most, think about this, the most sinful person in the world is still an image bearer of God. Yes, God's image can be effaced, but never erased. Every human being bears it. This is why James, when he's talking in chapter 3 about the tongue, tells us that with your tongue you can, you can bless God as your Lord and Father, and at the same time you can use it to curse someone who's made in the image of God. It should cause us to think before we speak to guard our tongues. Humanity created in the image of God. Thirdly, the male-female distinction. Male and female equally image God, but complement one another. Again, these distinctions, many of them, these, these creational norms, we'll be going into deeper in the coming weeks. But the male-female distinction is something that was creational. Jesus Himself stood on it. In Matthew 19 and Mark chapter 10, in referencing marriage, He quotes Genesis. He quotes the verses we read. And so the whole issues that we're facing today with, with the LGBTQ issues that surround us in culture, the transgender issues, birthing people, the craziness that's out there with not even being able to, to define what a woman is. All of it is a rebellion against the creational norm. Against the way God has created things pre-fall. And it doesn't change because culture changes. It's rooted in creation. This is what Christians need to understand about these difficult issues. And I understand it gets emotional. It's like, yeah, but my brother or my sister or my, my son told me he's this or that. I, I understand. Well, why should you care? Why do you Christians even care? It doesn't affect you. People should do whatever they want in their bedrooms. You shouldn't care. Creationally, we, God says, no, we, we must care. We care about culture. We care about society. We care about people. We care about the world our kids are growing. We care about people and we love them. No, you just hate people. No, we actually love them. And we, and we, and we're, we love them enough to tell them that they're going 200 miles an hour in the wrong direction and the bridge is out. And it's collapsing and we love them. But we stand on the creational norms and the truth of God's Word. <coughs> Fourthly, the cultural mandate. Much will be said more of this in the coming weeks. But ultimately you saw that man's first and, and primary calling is to exercise dominion. In essence, God deputizes man and says, Go, sheriff, steward all of my creation. Be fruitful, multiply, have dominion, tend, and keep all of this pre-fall. A lot of you don't like your job because you think, <coughs> well, that's part of the curse, isn't it? God cursed us, we have to work. Work is pre-fall, folks. Work is good. It's good. It's blessed. If you don't see it that way, you don't have a biblical worldview. It also brings dignity to everything we do. It fills it with meaning. Fifthly, the Sabbath is a creational norm. 
Again, there's many different views on this. I'm going to stick to the primary points of understanding biblically that the Sabbath is a gift. It's a truth. It's a principle that was instituted to demonstrate reliance on God. It's God's way of saying, work all you want, but I'm the one to trust. Rely on me, lean on me totally and completely. Sixthly, the goodness of creation. Did you see it all over Genesis 1? God said, it's what? It's good. It's good. It's good. It's very good. And here's why this is important to understand. The problem has never been the stuff. Asceticism, legalism, forms of pietism all tell us I need to abstain from this and abstain from that because that's the sin. I need to to not do here and not go there because that's the sin. Scriptures tell us that that's just stuff. The dollar bill's in your pocket. It's paper. It's just stuff. has no inherent goodness or badness. It's your heart. We'll talk about that next week in the fall. But the creational norm of the goodness in creation teaches us that God's world is a good world. And it teaches us, much like the the Puritans of old taught, they had a faith that was was full-orbed in all of life in many ways, and they were able to, to, to enjoy the good gifts of God for His glory in some particular ways that I find fascinating and that I think we should recover today. Seventh and lastly, fruitfulness. Fruitfulness. God loves fruitfulness. He loves multiplication. He loves growth. He loves health. He loves offspring. It's a creational norm. And we don't need to be afraid of it because some crazy preachers run off on a prosperity gospel and twist it for their self-benefit. Fruitfulness glorifies God. A Christian worldview understands that and desires to be fruitful for the glory of God. So in closing, I just want to ask you, where are you today? We're going to develop many of these, these norms and these themes in the coming weeks. Where are you today? Well, we all know for for where we are on the timeline of history in in, in light of the great storyline of the Bible, which was summarized in three words. What are they? Creation, fall, redemption. Where are you? My prayer is that you're in the third category. You have been redeemed and God is using you now in the process. His sovereign work of glorifying Himself by spreading His Gospel all over the nations. All over every area of life. How do you think? How do you live? Do you see through the clear lens of covenantal relationship with God? Do you see through the lens of of God's cosmic operating system? Is that how you function? When it comes to the tires hitting the rubber of the road, do you think creationally? Do you think biblically? When when you have a fight with your husband or your wife, do you think creationally? Do you think biblically? Do you you see yourself in the process of, of God created it all good and the fall ruins everything? More on that next week. It destroys, sin kills and destroys and ruins, but God is in the process through the blood of His Son, Jesus Christ, of redeeming. And and in redemption, not just the hearts of man, but all of creation is being redeemed. So you can go have lunch this afternoon and eat it in a redemptive way that gives God glory. It gives meaning to everything we do, everything we say, everything we think. Are your thoughts in conflict with your king? Or 
Are, are you sweet and smiling on the outside while a cosmic rebel on the inside? My prayer this morning is that as you chew on these things, and it was a lot, I know we threw a lot at you today. As you think on these things, by the grace, you and I would, in every area of our lives, submit ourselves to the God of creation and covenant.